This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Alan Quatermain by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 11 The Frowning City For an hour or more I sat waiting, Umslopogaas having meanwhile gone to sleep also, till at length the east turned grey and huge misty shapes moved over the surface of the water like ghosts of long-forgotten dawns. They were the vapours rising from their watery bed to greet the sun. Then the grey turned to primrose, and the primrose grew to red. Next, glorious bars of light sprang up across the eastern sky, and through them the radiant messengers of the dawn came speeding upon their arrowy way, scattering the ghostly vapours and awakening the mountains with a kiss as they flew from range to range and longitude to longitude. Another moment and the golden gates were open and the sun himself came forth as a bridegroom from his chamber with pomp and glory and a flashing as of ten million spears and embraced the night and covered her with brightness and it was day. But as yet I could see nothing save the beautiful blue sky above for over the water was a thick layer of mist exactly as though the whole surface had been covered with billows of cotton wool. By degrees, however, the sun sucked up the mists, and then I saw that we were afloat upon a glorious sheet of blue water of which I could not make out the shore. Some eight or ten miles behind us, however, there stretched as far as the eye could reach a range of precipitous hills that formed a retaining wall of the lake. And I have no doubt but that it was through some entrance in these hills that the subterranean river found its way into the open water. Indeed, I afterwards ascertained this to be the fact. And it will be some indication of the extraordinary strength and directness of the current of the mysterious river that the canoe even at this distance, was still answering to it. Presently, too, I, or rather Umslopogaas, who woke up just then, discovered another indication, and a very unpleasant one it was. Perceiving some whitish object upon the water, Umslopogaas called my attention to it, and with a few strokes of the paddle brought the canoe to the spot, whereupon we discovered that the object was the body of a man floating face downwards. This was bad enough, but imagine my horror when Umslopogaas, having turned him onto his back with the paddle, we recognized in the sunken features the lineaments of, whom do you suppose, none other than our poor servant who had been sucked down two days before in the waters of the subterranean river. It quite frightened me. I thought that we had left him behind forever, and behold, borne by the current, he had made the awful journey with us, and with us had reached the end. His appearance also was dreadful, for he bore traces of having touched the pillar of fire, one arm 
being completely shriveled up and all his hair being burnt off. The features were, as I have said, sunken, and yet they preserved upon them that awful look of despair that I had seen upon his living face as the poor fellow was sucked down. Really the sight unnerved me, weary and shaken as I felt with all that we had gone through, and I was heartily glad when suddenly and without any warning the body began to sink just as though it had had a mission, which, having been accomplished, it retired, the real reason, no doubt, being that turning it on its back allowed a free passage to the gas. Down it went to the transparent depths, fathom after fathom, we could trace its course, till at last a long line of bright air bubbles, swiftly chasing each other to the surface, alone remained where it had passed. At length these two were gone, and that was an end of our poor servant. Umslopogaas thoughtfully watched the body vanish. "'What did he follow us for?' he asked. "'Tis an ill omen for thee and me, Macumazahn.' And he laughed. I turned on him angrily, for I dislike these unpleasant suggestions. If people have such ideas, they ought in common decency to keep them to themselves. I detest individuals who make on the subject of their disagreeable presentiments, or who, when they dream that they saw one hanged as a common felon, or some such horror, will insist upon telling one all about it at breakfast, even if they have to get up early to do it. Just then, however, the others woke up and began to rejoice exceedingly at finding that we were out of that dreadful river and once more beneath the blue sky. Then followed a babble of talk and suggestions as to what we were to do next, the upshot of all of which was that, as we were excessively hungry and had nothing whatsoever left to eat except a few scraps of biltong, dried game flesh, having abandoned all that remained of our provisions to those horrible freshwater crabs, we determined to make for the shore. But a new difficulty arose. We did not know where the shore was, and with the exception of the cliffs through which the subterranean river made its entry, could see nothing but a wide expanse of sparkling blue water. Observing, however, that the long flights of aquatic birds kept flying from our left, we concluded that they were advancing from their feeding grounds on shore to pass the day in the lake, and accordingly headed the boat towards the quarter whence they came, and began to paddle. Before long, however, a stiffish breeze sprang up, blowing directly in the direction we wanted. So we improvised a sail with a blanket and the pole, which took us along merrily. This done, we devoured the remnants of our biltong, washed down with the sweet lake water, and then lit our pipes and awaited whatever might turn up. When we had been sailing for an hour, Good, who was searching the horizon with the spyglass, suddenly announced joyfully that he saw land, and pointed out that, from the change in the color of the water, he thought we must be approaching the mouth of a river. In another minute 
we perceived a great golden dome, not unlike that of St. Paul's, piercing the morning mists, and while we were wondering what in the world it could be, Good reported another and still more important discovery, namely that a small sailing boat was advancing towards us. This bit of news, which we were very shortly able to verify with our own eyes, threw us into a considerable flutter. That the natives of this unknown lake should understand the art of sailing seemed to suggest that they possessed some degree of civilization. In a few more minutes, it became evident that the occupant or occupants of the advancing boat had made us out. For a moment or two, she hung in the wind as though in doubt, and then came tacking towards us with great swiftness. In ten more minutes she was within a hundred yards, and we saw that she was a neat little boat, not a canoe dugout, but built more or less in the European fashion, with planks, and carrying a singularly large sail for her size. But our attention was soon diverted from the boat to her crew which consisted of a man and a woman nearly as white as ourselves. We stared at each other in amazement, thinking that we must be mistaken, but no, there was no doubt about it. They were not fair, but the two people in the boat were decidedly of a white as distinguished from a black race, as white, for instance, as Spaniards or Italians. It was a patent fact so it was true, after all, and mysteriously led by a power beyond our own, we had discovered this wonderful people. I could have shouted for joy when I thought of the glory and the wonder of the thing, and as it was, we all shook hands and congratulated each other on the unexpected success of our wild search. All my life, had I heard rumors of a white race that existed in the highlands of this vast continent, and longed to put them to the proof, and now here I saw it with my own eyes, and was dumbfounded. Truly, as Sir Henry said, the old Roman was right when he wrote Ex Africa Semper Aliquid Novi, which he tells me means that out of Africa there always comes some new thing. The man in the boat was of a good but not particularly fine physique, and possessed straight black hair, regular aquiline features, and an intelligent face. He was dressed in a brown cloth garment, something like a flannel shirt without the sleeves, and in an unmistakable kilt of the same material. The legs and feet were bare. Round the right arm and left leg he wore thick rings of yellow metal that I judged to be gold. The woman had a sweet face, wild and shy, with large eyes and curling brown hair. Her dress was made of the same material as the man's, and consisted, as we afterwards discovered, first of a linen undergarment that hung down to her knee, and then of a single long strip of cloth about four feet wide by fifteen long, which was wound round the body in graceful folds and finally flung over the left shoulder so that the end, which was dyed blue, 
or purple or some other color, according to the social standing of the wearer, hung down in front, the right arm and breast being, however, left quite bare. A more becoming dress, especially when, as in the present case, the wearer was young and pretty, it is quite impossible to conceive. Good, who has an eye for such things, was greatly struck with it, and so indeed was I. It was so simple and yet so effective. Meanwhile, if we had been astonished at the appearance of the man and woman, it was clear that they were far more astonished at us. As for the man, he appeared to be overcome with fear and wonder, and for a while hovered round our canoe but would not approach. At last, however, he came within hailing distance, and called to us in a language that sounded soft and pleasing enough, but of which we could not understand one word. So we hailed back in English, French, Latin, Greek, German, Zulu, Dutch, Sisutu, Kukuana, and a few other native dialects that I am acquainted with. But our visitor did not understand any of these tongues. Indeed, they appeared to bewilder him. As for the lady, she was busily employed in taking stock of us, and Good was returning the compliment by staring at her hard through his eyeglass, a proceeding that she seemed rather to enjoy than otherwise. At length, the man, being unable to make anything of us, suddenly turned his boat round and began to head off for the shore, his little boat skimming away before the wind like a swallow. As she passed across our bows, the man turned to attend to the large sail, and Good promptly took the opportunity to kiss his hand to the young lady. I was horrified at this proceeding, both on general grounds and because I feared that she might take offense, but to my delight she did not for first glancing round and seeing that her husband or brother or whoever he was was engaged she promptly kissed hers back ah said i it seems that we have at last found a language that the people of this country understand in which case said sir henry good will prove an invaluable interpreter i frowned for i do not approve of good's frivolities and he knows it and I turn the conversation to more serious subjects. It is very clear to me, I said, that the man will be back before long with a host of his fellows, so we had best make up our minds as to how we are going to receive them. The question is how will they receive us, said Sir Henry. As for good, he made no remark but began to extract a small square tin case that had accompanied us in all our wanderings from under a pile of baggage. Now we had often remonstrated with Good about this tin case, inasmuch as it had been an awkward thing to carry, and he had never given any very explicit account as to its contents, but he had insisted on keeping it saying mysteriously that it might come in very useful one day. "'What on earth are you going to do, Good?' asked Sir Henry. "'Do? Why, dress, of course. You don't expect me to appear in a new country in these things, do you?' 
and he pointed to his soiled and worn garments, which were, however, like all goods things, very tidy, and with every tear neatly mended. We said no more, but watched his proceedings with breathless interest. His first step was to get Alphonse, who was thoroughly competent in such matters, to trim his hair and beard in the most approved fashion. I think that if he had had some hot water and a cake of soap at hand, he would have shaved off the latter, but he had not. This done, he suggested that we should lower the sail of the canoe and all take a bath, which we did, greatly to the horror and astonishment of Alphonse, who lifted his hands and ejaculated that these English were indeed a wonderful people. Umslopogaas, who, though he was, like most high-bred Zulus, scrupulously clean in his person, did not see the fun of swimming about in a lake, also regarded the proceeding with mild amusement. We got back into the canoe much refreshed by the cold water, and sat to dry in the sun, whilst Good undid his tin box, and produced first a beautiful clean white shirt, just as it had left a London steam laundry, and then some garments wrapped first in brown, then in white, and finally in silver paper. We watched this undoing with the tenderest interest and much speculation. One by one, Good removed the dull husks that hid their splendors, carefully folding and replacing each piece of paper as he did so, and there at last lay in all the majesty of its golden epaulets, lace, and buttons a commander of the Royal Navy's full-dress uniform, dress sword, cocked hat, shiny patent leather boots, and all. We literally gasped. What? we said. What? Are you going to put those things on? Certainly, he answered composedly. You see, so much depends upon a first impression, especially, he added, as I observe that there are ladies about. One, at least of us, ought to be decently dressed. We said no more. We were simply dumbfounded, especially when we considered the artful way in which Good had concealed the contents of that box for all these months. Only one suggestion did we make namely, that he should wear his mail shirt next his skin. He replied that he feared it would spoil the set of his coat, now carefully spread in the sun, to take the creases out, but finally consented to this precautionary measure. The most amusing part of the affair, however, was to see old Umslopogaas's astonishment and Alphonse's delight at Good's transformation. When at last he stood up in all his glory, even down to the medals on his breast, and contemplated himself in the still waters of the lake, after the fashion of the young gentleman in ancient history, whose name I cannot remember, but who fell in love with his own shadow, the old Zulu could no longer restrain his feelings. Oh, Bougwan, he said, oh, Bougwan, I always thought thee an ugly little man and fat, fat as the cows at calving time. And now thou art like a blue jay when he spreads his tail out. 
Surely, Bougwan, it hurts my eyes to look at thee. Good did not much like this allusion to his fat, which, to tell the truth, was not very well deserved, for hard exercise had brought him down three inches. But on the whole he was quite pleased at Umslopogaas's admiration. As for Alphonse, he was quite delighted. Ah, but monsieur has the beautiful air, the air of the warrior. It is the ladies who will say so when we come to get ashore. Monsieur is complete. He puts me in mind of my heroic grand... Here we stopped, Alphonse. As we gazed upon the beauties thus revealed by good, a spirit of emulation filled our breasts, and we set to work to get ourselves up as well as we could. The most, however, that we were able to do was to array ourselves in our spare suits of shooting clothes, of which we each had several. All the fine clothes in the world could never make it otherwise than scrubby and insignificant. But Sir Henry looked what he is, a magnificent man in his nearly new tweed suit, gaiters, and boots. Alphonse also got himself up to kill, giving an extra turn to his enormous mustaches. Even old Umslopogas, who was not in a general way given to the vain adorning of his body, took some oil out of the lantern and a bit of tow, and polished up his head-ring with it till it shone like Good's patent leather boots. Then he put on the mail shirt Sir Henry had given him, and his muka, and having cleaned up Inkosikas a little, stood forth complete. All this while, having hoisted the sail again as soon as we had finished bathing, we had been progressing steadily for the land, or rather, for the mouth of a great river. Presently, in all about an hour and a half after the little boat had left us, we saw emerging from the river or harbor a large number of boats, ranging up to ten or twelve tons burden. One of these was propelled by twenty-four oars, and most of the rest sailed. Looking through the glass, we soon made out that the rowboat was an official vessel, her crew being all dressed in a sort of uniform, whilst on the half-deck forward stood an old man of venerable appearance and with a flowing white beard and a sword strapped to his side, who was evidently the commander of the craft. The other boats were apparently occupied by people brought out by curiosity, and were rowing or sailing towards us as quickly as they could. "'Now for it,' said I. "'What is the betting? Are they going to be friendly, or to put an end to us?' Nobody could answer this question, and not liking the warlike appearance of the old gentleman and his sword, we felt a little anxious. Just then Good spied a school of hippopotami on the water about two hundred yards off us, and suggested that it would not be a bad plan to impress the natives with a sense of our power by shooting some of them if possible. This, unluckily enough, struck us as a good idea, and accordingly we at once got out our eight-bore rifles, for which we still had a few cartridges left, and prepared for action. 
there were four of the animals, a big bull, a cow, and two young ones, one three parts grown. We got up to them without difficulty, the great animals contenting themselves with sinking down into the water and rising again a few yards farther on. Indeed, their excessive tameness struck me as being peculiar. When the advancing boats were about five hundred yards away, Sir Henry opened the ball by firing at the three-parts-grown young one. The heavy bullet struck it fair between the eyes, and crashing through the skull killed it, and it sank, leaving a long train of blood behind it. At the same moment I fired at the cow, and good at the old bull. My shot took effect, but not fatally, and down went the hippopotamus with a prodigious splashing, only to rise again presently blowing and grunting furiously, dyeing all the water round her crimson, when I killed her with the left barrel. Good, who was an execrable shot, missed the head of the bull altogether, the bullet merely cutting the side of his face as it passed. On glancing up, after I had fired my second shot, I perceived that the people we had fallen among were evidently ignorant of the nature of firearms, for the consternation caused by our shots and their effect upon the animals was prodigious. Some of the parties in the boats began to cry out in fear. Others turned and made off as hard as they could, and even the old gentleman with the sword looked greatly puzzled and alarmed, and halted his big rowboat. We had, however, but little time for observation, for just then the old bull, rendered furious by the wound he had received, rose fair within forty yards of us, glaring savagely. We all fired, and hit him in various places, and down he went, badly wounded. Curiosity now began to overcome the fear of the onlookers, and some of them sailed on up close to us, amongst these being the man and the woman whom we had first seen a couple of hours or so before, who drew up almost alongside. Just then the great brute rose again within ten yards of their base, and instantly with a roar of fury made at it open mouth. The woman shrieked, and the man tried to give the boat way, but without success. In another second I saw the huge red jaws and gleaming ivories close with a crunch on the frail craft, taking an enormous mouthful out of its side and capsizing it. Down went the boat, leaving its occupants struggling in the water. Next moment, before we could do anything towards saving them, the huge and furious creature was up again and making open mouth at the poor girl who was struggling in the water. Lifting my rifle just as the grinding jaws were about to close on her, I fired over her head right down the hippopotamus's throat. Over he went, and commenced turning round and round, snorting and blowing red streams of blood through his nostrils. Before he could recover himself, however, I let him have the other barrel in the side of the throat, and that finished him. He never moved or struggled again, but instantly sank. 
our next effort was directed towards saving the girl, the man having swum off towards another boat, and in this we were fortunately successful, pulling her into the canoe amidst the shouts of the spectators, considerably exhausted and frightened, but otherwise unhurt. Meanwhile the boats had gathered together at a distance, and we could see that the occupants, who were evidently much frightened, were consulting what to do. Without giving them time for further consideration, which we thought might result unfavorably to ourselves, we instantly took our paddles and advanced toward them, Good standing in the bow and taking off his cocked hat politely in every direction, his amiable features suffused by a bland but intelligent smile. Most of the craft retreated as we advanced, but a few held their ground, while the big rowboat came on to meet us. Presently we were alongside, and I could see that our appearance, and especially goods and Umslopogas's, filled the venerable-looking commander with astonishment not unmixed with awe. He was dressed after the same fashion as the man we first met, except that his shirt was not made of brown cloth, but of pure white linen hemmed with purple. The kilt, however, was identical, and so were the thick rings of gold around the arm and beneath the left knee. The rowers wore only a kilt, their bodies being naked to the waist. Good took off his hat to the old gentleman with an extra flourish, and inquired after his health in the purest English, to which he replied by laying the first two fingers of his right hand horizontally across his lips, and holding them there for a moment, which we took as his method of salutation. Then he also addressed some remarks to us, in the same soft accents that had distinguished our first interviewer, which we were forced to indicate we did not understand by shaking our heads and shrugging our shoulders. This last, Alphonse, being to the manner born, did to perfection, and in so polite a way that nobody could take any offense. Then we came to a standstill, till I, being exceedingly hungry, thought I might as well call attention to the fact, and did so first by opening my mouth and pointing down it, then by rubbing my stomach. These signals the old gentleman clearly understood, for he nodded his head vigorously and pointed towards the harbor, and at the same time one of the men on his boat threw us a line and motioned to us to make it fast, which we did. The rowboat then took us in tow and went with great rapidity towards the mouth of the river, accompanied by all the other boats. In about twenty minutes more we reached the entrance to the harbor, which was crowded with boats full of people who had come out to see us. We observed that all the occupants were more and less of the same type, though some were fairer than others. Indeed, we noticed certain ladies whose skins was of a most dazzling whiteness, and the darkest shade of color which we saw was about that of a rather swarthy Spaniard. Presently the wide river gave a sweep, and when it did so an exclamation of astonishment and delight burst from our lips 
as we caught our first view of the place that we afterwards knew as Milosis, or the frowning city, from my, which means city, and Losis, a frown. At a distance of some five hundred yards from the river's bank rose a sheer precipice of granite, two hundred feet or so in height, which had no doubt once formed the bank itself, the intermediate space of land now utilized as docks and roadways, having been gained by draining and deepening and embanking the stream. On the brow of this precipice stood a great building of the same granite that formed the cliff, built on three sides of a square, the fourth side being open, save for a kind of battlement pierced at its base by a little door. This imposing place we afterwards discovered was the palace of the queen, or rather of the queen's. At the back of the palace the town sloped gently upwards to a flashing building of white marble, crowned by the golden dome which we had already observed. The city was, with the exception of this one building, entirely built of red granite, and laid out in regular blocks with splendid roadways between. So far as we could see, also the houses were all one-storied and detached, with gardens round them, which gave some relief to the eye wearied with the vista of red granite. At the back of the palace a road of extraordinary width stretched away up the hill for a distance of a mile and a half or so, and appeared to terminate at an open space surrounding the gleaming building that crowned the hill. But right in front of us was the wonder and glory of Milosis, the great staircase of the palace, the magnificence of which took our breath away. Let the reader imagine, if he can, a splendid stairway, sixty-five feet from balustrade to balustrade, consisting of two vast flights, each of one hundred and twenty-five steps of eight inches in height by three feet broad, connected by a flat resting place sixty feet in length, and running from the palace wall on the edge of the precipice down to meet a waterway or canal cut to its foot from the river. This marvelous staircase was supported upon a single enormous granite arch, of which the resting place between the two flights formed the crown. That is, the connecting open space lay upon it. From this archway sprang a subsidiary flying arch, or rather something that resembled a flying arch in shape, such as none of us had seen in any other country, and of which the beauty and wonder surpassed all that we had ever imagined. Three hundred feet from point to point, and no less than five hundred and fifty round the curve, that half-arc soared, touching the bridge it supported for a space of fifty feet only, one end resting on and built into the parent archway, and the other embedded in the solid granite of the side of the precipice. This staircase, with its supports, was, indeed, a work of which any living man might have been proud, both on account of its magnitude and its surpassing beauty. Four times, as we afterwards learnt, did the work 
which was commenced in remote antiquity, fail, and was then abandoned for three centuries when half finished, till at last there rose a youthful engineer named Radimas, who said that he would complete it successfully and staked his life upon it. If he failed, he was to be hurtled from the precipice he had undertaken to scale. If he succeeded, he was to be rewarded by the hand of the king's daughter. Five years was given to him to complete the work, and an unlimited supply of labor and material. Three times did his arch fall, till at last, seeing failure to be inevitable, he determined to commit suicide on the morrow of the third collapse. That night, however, a beautiful woman came to him in a dream and touched his forehead, and of a sudden he saw a vision of the completed work, and saw, too, through the masonry, and how the difficulties connected with the flying arch that had hitherto baffled his genius were to be overcome. Then he awoke, and once more commenced the work, but on a different plan. And behold, he achieved it, and on the last day of the five years, he led the princess his bride up the stair and into the palace. And in due course he became king by right of his wife, and founded the present Zuvendi dynasty, which is to this day called the House of the Stairway, thus proving once more how energy and talent are the natural stepping stones to grandeur. And to commemorate his triumph, he fashioned a statue of himself dreaming, and of the fair woman who touched him on the forehead, and placed it in the great hall of the palace, and there it stands to this day. Such was the great stair of Milosis, and such the city beyond. No wonder they named it the Frowning City, for certainly those mighty works in solid granite did seem to frown down upon our littleness in their somber splendor. This was so even in the sunshine, but when the storm clouds gathered on her imperial brow, Milosis looked more like a supernatural dwelling place, or some imagining of a poet's brain, than what she is, a mortal city carved by the patient genius of generations out of the red silence of the mountainside. End of chapter 11